Hello, welcome back to the High Heat Stats Podcast. Thanks for joining us again. This is number seven. When I say number seven, who do you think of? Uh, I suspect that the vast majority of us think of Mickey Mantle, whether you're a Yankees fan or not. Um, it's hard to separate Mickey Mantle from number seven. Can you name any of the other guys who wore number seven for at least ten years in the majors? There actually are quite a few, and I'm going to give you the full list at the end of this podcast, so stick around for that. And in the meantime, go ahead and enjoy this episode. We're going to talk about some stuff going on right now in 2013, and also a few of the players who we think belong in the Hall of Fame. We've got Brian, Dalton, and Dan with us today, so uh, go ahead and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the High Heat Stats Podcast. I am your host, Andy, and today we have a familiar crew, uh, starting off with Dalton Mack. Hey, Dalton. How's it going there, Andy? Oh, you sound more like Brian this week than you did, like, last week. <laughs> very, very, uh, you must have grown a little bit between then and now, maybe. A little bit, still no. not quite up to, uh, to Brian's lofty status. <laughs> uh, we, we can all only aspire to reach Brian's status. Uh, it seems appropriate to welcome Brian next. Hello, Mr. O'Connor. My status, if you talk about my height, is not all it's cracked up to be. But oh, I, I'm sure I meant to say stature, not status. <laughs> you're, you're right. Your, your, your stature is much higher. My social status is certainly all it's cracked up to be. But... I hear you're the talk of Maine. There. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know all those restaurants and, and stuff up in Maine that are like the Maine Diner where they use the, the name of the state, Maine? Awful. You could, be, you could be like the Maine man up there. Oh, it's it's mainly clothing, every every shop in Cumberland yeah. County. Now, there is a diner called the Maine Diner that is in, uh, I think it's in Wells, Maine. Sure. It's, it's a little bit north up of Agunquit. That is an excellent diner. Uh, really excellent food. Uh, highly recommended. I, I've been there numerous times. There's a lot of great food up here. Yeah. And uh, last but not least, Dan McCluskey. Welcome back, Dan. Howdy there, Andy. So we have the same uh, same group as last time. Adam is occupied, and Ashley is moving and working, apparently. So... Uh, is the three of us or the four of us? I can. I'm good with the stats. There are four of us on this call, so we're going to uh, just talk a little bit about the 2013 season, and then we're going to jump into one of everybody's favorite topics, which is talking about some guys who we think should be in the Hall of Fame. Uh, regarding the current season, uh, so I was looking at the performance of, of all the major league teams with runners in scoring position and I just looked at batting average which of course is a n- not a great statistic but just trust me that on base percentage and slugging percentage track pretty well with batting average uh, for this particular study and so I'm just going to stick with batting average I looked at the teams whose batting average was the most points higher with runners on scoring position versus their overall batting average in all situations. So I actually ranked all 30 teams. This is just done using the split finder on baseball references play index. And the average in the major leagues is actually a difference of only three points, three batting average points more with runners in scoring position than compared to the overall batting average. So it's very, very small, um, even though, that is based on tens of thousands of, of plate appearances, so it is probably a still a, a significant number. But the interesting thing is you look at the spread, and you look at the two teams involved in the spread are, are the two teams that maybe most people are talking about right now. 
The Cardinals are number one with an unbelievable 62-point bump in their batting average with runners in scoring position versus their overall batting average. And I'll get back to that number in a minute. 62 points positive. Pirates are dead last, 21 points negative. So their batting average with runners in scoring position is actually 21 points lower than their overall batting average. And then average in the National League alone is zero. There's actually no difference in the batting average with runners in scoring position or not, or or, or overall, I should say. Um, Now, the Cardinals' difference of 62 points would be the highest difference in baseball history if that holds. If you look at all the past seasons, as far back as we can go, which is actually only to 1945 where we have the complete uh, play-by-play in order to be able to, to determine it, the record is actually the 1946 Yankees, who were only 43 points better. So the Cardinals are 62 points better this year. So that is immense. In the last whole bunch of years, in the 2000s, for example, the biggest number we've seen is 30 points difference. The Cardinals are more than double that. So I'm curious what you guys think about why those differences exist and what it may mean for the performance of these teams going forward the rest of this year. Does anybody want to jump in with a thought on that? Why there's an overall split, you mean? Like why, why as, a, as a whole, the league is three points higher with? No, the, what would you say the, for the Cardinals and the Pirates specifically? What does that mean? I mean, we know that in the last few days here, the Pirates have beaten up on the Cardinals pretty well and passed them into first place. You know, the teams would seemingly be pretty similar, but there's such a huge disparity there. What does it mean? I, I have my own thoughts. I just wanted to see if anybody else had anything they wanted to chime in with first. Well, certainly part of it is luck. Right. Yeah, not necessarily luck, but, but, better, but better timing. It's about a thousand plate appearances for each team that we're talking about. So this, you know, this is an 83 point swing in batting average over a thousand plate appearances. I'm sure luck plays a part, but it's not, this is not just a random, uh, small sample size, uh, event for sure, uh, that's causing sort of a random fluctuation. Um, it, it has me concerned for the Pirates. Uh, in the future, uh, in this season, because it suggests that they've been winning perhaps with incredibly timely and relatively rare key hits. Uh, if they're hitting so poorly with runners in scoring position, uh, it, um, it suggests to me that maybe when they come up against the better teams more consistently in the playoffs, that they won't be able to get those key hits. I say that, of course, while they're beating the Cardinals to a pulp in the series that they're playing right now. Uh, so maybe that won't hold. The other thing, the other flip side you could make is you could make a negative argument about the Cardinals saying, well, they've just hit incredibly well uh, with runners in scoring position, which has really helped them win a lot of games. And when that number just regresses somewhat closer back to average, uh, they're going to be uh, in for some trouble when the playoffs come around. Uh, it's just an interesting thought. Um, you hear some of these numbers of what their regulars are doing. Uh, it's just incredible. I mean, Alan Craig, his slash line with the with the runners in scoring position, 465, 491, 644. That's over 100 plate appearances. Matt Carpenter is at 400, 495, 560. You know, Yadier Molina's way up there. Beltron's way up there. They got a couple other guys that are that are just hitting well over 350. Um, it's just incredible. Anyway, I, I just want to point that out. I don't know if anybody has anything they want to add to that whole phenomenon. I'm with Dan. I, I, I'm sure it's more than luck, but luck plays enough of a role in that that I would expect significant regression to come. Right, and I guess the question is, what does that mean? Does that mean that the Pirates are actually in for a boost because they've hit so poorly? Uh, with runners in scoring position that we can actually expect them to hit better and perform even better and maybe bring that 
that terrible run scoring average they have up, sure. and similarly the Cardinals back down. And if that's the case, then we could look at these teams who have roughly identical records right now and say maybe the Pirates really are significantly better. So the, so the Cardinals are, what, 271 overall, and you said they're about 60 points higher with runners in scoring Yeah, they're position? batting 333, 333 with runners in scoring position, yeah. And that's about 1,000 plate appearances? Right. So, it's about, so that means it's about 3,000 plate appearances not with runners in scoring position, so three times as many. So, so actually their batting average in other situations is probably more like 250, right? Yes. Which actually makes it an even an even wider an even wider disparity, um, right? Right. But so so that so actually in in you know what what's wrong with them in those situations? You know I don't I don't think it's all luck. I'm not saying they're getting lucky, like they're really a 250 hitting team, and they're so freaking lucky to be a 330 hitting team with runners in scoring position. Just that it's more that it's fortunate that their timing is better. Than the pirates, for instance. Are you are you struggling to avoid using the word clutch? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, no, not really, because I'm 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 still attributing it to mostly luck. I think I think good timing is luck is more luck than it's than it is clutch. Yep, definitely. Um, but I'm not trying to completely discount the idea of clutch either. Um, there's, there's, there's certainly something to it and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's just, you know, within periods of time that teams just happen to be a little clutchier. I don't know. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, there's something to be said for, for focus and fatigue and who you're, who you're facing pitching wise and, uh, you know, things clearly don't go exactly on average all year long. Um, and so it's tough to know. That difference is just so large um, that, you know, so so we talked about two different things here. We talked about randomness and luck. It's clearly not randomness, but, but, but there probably is a large luck component, especially if you factor in factors that kind of look like luck in terms of which pitchers you happen to be facing and, who's hot and not, and who's injured and not, and stuff like that. So, anyway, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. And, you know, the Cardinals would have to have a massive drop-off to not set the all-time record, or at least the 1945 on record, um, in this department. They'd have to drop off really significantly. I mean, they basically would have to get down to a difference of zero for the rest of the year uh, to get down under that 43-point number. Anyway, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I'm just going yeah, to hop in. Yeah, I agree with uh, really everyone here. I think it's a lot of luck, although it's interesting you mentioned a guy like Alan Craig because I remember last year seeing a ton of stuff about how he hit just just out, just out of his mind against with, uh, with runners in scoring position. It seems he's doing it again this year. Is he a clutch player? I mean, every year in his career, he has been, he's had a runners in scoring position batting average, uh, right around or well above, uh, his regular season batting average. This year, it's something insane, like 465. And I think last year it was 400. So the notion of clutch, of course, heavily debated in saber circles. I'm not a huge believer in it, because you'll see a guy who hits the cover off the ball with runners in scoring position one year, and then hits 230 the next year. But there's there's something going on there that that seems to be just beyond the borders of, uh, or the boundaries of luck, because that that disparity is, is outrageous. Yeah, you're right. You're right about Craig. 400, 450, 680 slash line last year with runners in scoring position. That's 149 plate appearances. He has eight home runs, and 11 doubles, and okay, he had 74 RBI in in 149 plate appearances. That's pretty impressive. Now, I know a lot of studies have kind of debunked the idea of clutch hitters in terms of you know, who's got better nerves and, and uh, stays calmer and all that, but I've never seen a study on who's better versus pitchers out of the stretch versus the windup. And I'd have to think that pitching from the stretch – you know, are all these Chapmans not going to find 102 miles an hour? Um, I wonder if it has something to do with uh, 
you know, fastball hitters may have actually a harder time against the pitcher pitching from the stretch with runners on versus, you know, guys who thrive on off-speed stuff. Really spitballing here, and I, I have nothing to back this up, but I wonder if you guys have seen any any studies on that. I haven't, but I think you raise a good point. I think there are a lot of things to consider. I think that in this day and age where there are more and more pitcher appearances per game, in other words, more and more relievers being used, it also means that you're facing a fresh guy or perhaps you know more of an ace reliever more often in those situations where there are runners in scoring position because the manager makes a pitching change. I don't know. My thing about clutch has always been, too, is that there's something to be said about focus and effort. And there are clearly batters who you can see who are more focused in key moments of the game. I don't think that that's the same thing as clutch um, or or the opposite thing of crumbling under pressure or whatever. But it's clear to me that players do not on average, players do not give the same effort at all points of the game. It's just not true. I mean, somebody like, I hate to pull out the same guy all the time, somebody like Jeter, uh, or so let's say Dustin Pedroia, they do, right? They're, they're going full on 100% of the time. Every plate appearance, every ball in the field, everything. But that's not true for the majority of guys. It's not hard to see. So I, I think these things are very hard to tease apart. Um, and Brian, your point is as good as any, I think. Um, unless anyone wants to add anything, I wanted to just move on to one other topic. Um, and that's about umpiring, um, or more specifically about umpiring and replay. There, there have been a number of high profile bad calls in the last week or two here, and there's been a lot of discussion about how replay is going to be expanded, and, and I don't want to debate replay because I think it's pretty obvious that replay should be added as long as it doesn't slow down the game in any significant way. Exactly how that gets implemented, I'm not sure, but I, I think it's sort of stupid to not take advantage of information that we have, so it might as well be used. But I was just thinking about umpiring in general, and I'm thinking... Umpiring has got to be better now than at any point in the history of the game. And by better, I mean more accurate in terms of uh, the, the, the correctness of calls. Um, and, I, and I don't know that there's necessarily any way to measure it, but there's so many reasons why that's got to be true. Uh, number one, umpires are more athletic now than they've ever been before, which I think helps them on the field. Uh, helps them get in the right position and that sort of thing. But also, think about like 50 years ago or more when the vast majority of games were not televised. Think about how an umpire would make a call and you would never see it again, right? There was no replay. There was no video. There was nothing. I mean, forget the fact that there was no jumbotron. You couldn't see a replay immediately. You couldn't go back to a tape Nobody saw it on TV. Literally, it happened, it was gone, and you could never see it again. And I think in a case like that, nobody can learn, right? Umpires can't learn from mistakes. Nobody can debate it. I mean, you could debate it, but nobody has evidence, right? Nobody has any evidence of what actually happened. You can argue what the call should have been, but nobody knows. And also, umpires then aren't really accountable. I mean, if you know that the second something happens, it's, it's lost to time, why bother trying to be really accurate, right? If you know that no one's going to be able to come up with evidence against you. I would imagine when once games were, were, were televised on a regular basis, the umpires had to realize that they were suddenly much more accountable. They also then had a record of things they were able to look at and learn from, and the TV information has just gotten better and better and better. And I think about how much better it is now with HD TV than it was even just 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I just find it interesting to think about it and think about there's so much scrutiny on umpire calls now, despite the fact that I would bet anything that umpiring 
is better now than it ever has been before. Um, and why there's so much attention being paid to it now. I know you guys didn't even know what topic I was going to raise here. I'm just curious if anybody has any thoughts about umpiring and replay in general that you want to share. Yeah, I mean, I'd be interested to 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 see if there was a way to to back up what you're saying. I mean, I really think it comes down to the internet and uh, the the high exposure that's going on now is the reason why. So you said 50 years ago, but even compared to 20 years ago, is the reason why we're we're seeing and we're aware of every controversial play that happens. And so therefore people are making a much, you know, much bigger deal out of it. That's true. I mean, I remember when Tony Gwynn was in his prime, let's say in the mid to late eighties. And a lot was made of, Oh, he's really taking advantage of the video. You know, that, and that involved him going into the room and getting the tapes and having someone queue up the tapes for all of his at bats and all the rest of that. It's not as easy as it is today where anybody can go to MLB TV and call up any play from any game um, and, and and scrutinize it. So I agree. Anybody else? I guess I fail to see how that's an argument that umpiring is better than ever before. I think it's it's an argument against this feeling we might have that arguing that, that arguing that umpiring is worse than it ever has been because there are more high profile bad calls, but. I I just don't see evidence that umpires are in better shape or that they they feel any need to make better calls because they're on TV. Yeah, I don't I don't know if I if I necessarily think that either. I will say they are in better shape now than they were say 20 or so years ago. You don't have the Eric Greggs and the John McSherry's out there. I mean, you definitely got some guys that are not purely athletic looking, but they, it has a lot to do with the lifestyle. I mean, you guys probably know, or maybe you don't. I went to Brinkman Fremming umpire school and almost 20 years ago now. And even then they were trying to make an effort to, to bring in more athletic umpires. And I had a buddy that was pretty close, probably pretty close to getting a job. And he was just a little, you know, a little out of shape and, nowhere near as bad as some of the umpires that uh, that were umpiring the major leagues at the time, but it was it was considered that it worked against him. And um, so I so I think they are. Um, I don't know that they feel like they have to be better because they're more accountable because of the higher level of scrutiny. But yeah, I don't I don't. I think that if you if you think about what goes into the minds of the umpires today versus what goes into the minds of the umpires back before TV, I don't think there's necessarily a continuous string that you can draw that there's certainly no logical evidence that you can lay out to demonstrate my point. My point is only thinking about what the mindsets of those umpires must be. Um, I would have to think that umpires today are more motivated to make correct calls knowing that they have essentially no chance of getting away with an egregiously bad call as evidenced by what we're seeing. I mean, any call that's even remotely controversial gets pressed now. Whereas I think back in the day, I'm not saying that umpires didn't care back in the day, but you just got to think about this. I mean, like, are you more likely to pick your nose when you're at home alone when no one can see you or when you're in standing in the middle of a shopping mall? That's that's not a that's not a literal <laughs> question I would like you to yeah, when you got a to, like, call. <laughs> Right. But my point is, you know, evidence and and people observing makes people more self-aware. There's no question about that. I would think it applies to umpires. You guys are right. I have no proof of what I'm saying. Uh, it's only sort of a logical argument that I'm making, but I certainly don't have evidence or proof. Right. I think I'm going to take this 180 degrees, Andy. I think human nature is to want to be seen, to want to be heard, to want everybody to know who you are. And you're saying that an umpire is not going to make a bad call without getting called out on it. 
Well, I would never have heard of Jerry Meals if not for the call he made in the Pirates and Braves game a couple of years ago and the call he made in the Red Sox and Rays game a couple of nights ago. Jerry Meals is a part of my consciousness now because of two egregious calls. I'm not sure there's motivation to be better. I think there's motivation to be louder. I think there's motivation to be bolder. I think Angel Hernandez or Angel Hernandez or whatever, whichever one he doesn't want me to call him, wants to know <laughs> who he is. He, he wants to – I don't think he's motivated to make bad calls. I think he's motivated to be bold and controversial and loud so that it's not the Andrew McCutcheon show and the Carlos Beltran and Yadier Molina show. It's his show. And I don't think that necessarily makes them better. And I'm not sure that makes them much worse, but I think that's the counter to the argument that they know because they're on TV that they're under pressure to make good calls. Every ump wants to make good calls. Today, when they make a bad call, they're going to make a loud bad call, and they're going to let you know who they are. Yeah, but Angel Hernandez is one example, and Bob Davidson is one example. And you can you can pull those examples out in – with with any group of people so yeah sure and you know there are probably a couple umpires maybe more than a couple umpires who seem to want to seek attention or like you said want to want to look like they're being you know i don't i don't know i don't know what the word is i'm looking for but um but i i would still say the majority of them want to just fade into the limelight and not be noticed and I, I'm sure Jerry Meals didn't want the attention that he got from those two calls. That's for that's for sure. Especially the especially the one from a couple of years ago. Yeah, you're probably or what's his name? Uh, the Armando Galarraga should have been Jim, perfect. Game. Jim Joyce, yeah. Right, right. I'm just, I, I mean, he turned that around and did some good things for charity with that. But I'm sure it wasn't how he wanted to get attention. But Brian, I. I take your point. I, I also would like to award you uh, a special award for intentional cultural insensitivity. <laughs> I, I've known lots of people who are culturally insensitive, but you're the, that's the first time I've ever heard someone do it intentionally. That was, uh, that was impressive. It, I, I'd like to think that was personal as opposed to cultural. I also <laughs> try to refer to our governor of the page by the wrong first name every chance I get just to not give him <laughs> the credit for... <laughs> Being who he is. And I'll just close this with Hank O'Day just made the Hall of Fame 100 years later. <laughs> Hank O'Day doesn't make a controversial call. I'm not sure he's in the Hall of Fame. And as it turns out, we look back 100 years later, and the call was, was probably right. At the time, people probably hated him for it. He was, you know, just refused to just kind of play the party line, the, oh, everybody does this. He stood out. He was big and loud, and some people probably hated him, and we know who he is. He's in the Hall of Fame now. Actually, I think you need to read Adam's piece on what makes a Hall of Fame umpire, because uh, Hank, Hank O'Day umpired the second most World Series in, in history. So, um, and, and those are the types of things that seem to get seem to get umpires into the Hall of Fame. But, yeah, I, I suppose one high-profile call certainly helps his case as well. But... Um... But Dan, like you were saying before, I think, you know, a lot of it, at least the scrutiny seems to just come from the internet where I think it really, as all of you were saying, you can replay it again and again, and probably from several different angles just to see how a guy made the bad call. And certainly there's, you know, there's a lot of negative reactions, especially on social media sites like Twitter. But I mean, it, you know, it, I guess we can take some solace in the response is not quite what it was like you know, when baseball was first starting at the game where, you know, an umpire might be found face down in a ditch the next morning after a game <laughs> put there by some unruly fans, and that's if he was lucky. Now, that's but, motivation. Yeah, exactly. But that's I think like soccer. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's tough to say, really, whether the calls are better now. They're, the umps are certainly more athletic. I mean, I, I umpire uh, men's 30-and-up softball games, so the athleticism is not great there. But in general, you know, watching the professional game and even at minor league games, uh, the umps look for the most part in pretty good shape. Whether that helps their judgment, I'm not sure. You know, it's not like they have to do a full full out sprint to uh, to get the right angle on a call. But you know, it it'd be great to find some data. I don't know if it exists, but just about uh, blown calls. I'm I'm sure at least for the last few years, I bet there's someone working on it. All right, let's uh, let's move on to our next segment talking about players who we think belong in the Hall of Fame. 
Uh, I asked everyone to come up with one player uh, who's the guy who you think the most deserving of being in the Hall of Fame who either is not in or did not get in. Um, and what we're going to do is uh, when it's your turn to go, you get two minutes to make your case. Um, and when the timer goes off, you're done. Uh, and then we'll spend uh, a couple of minutes among the rest of us talking about your guy, and then we'll move on. I'm doing it like this because uh, Hall of Fame discussions can get really long and detailed, as can the retort. So I'm going to apply a timer uh, on everybody. Um, somebody itching to go first? No? I'll go first. All right, Dalton, you are on the clock. Go. All right, the guy we're talking about today is uh, Mr. Kevin Brown of the Rangers, Dodgers, a few other teams in there, Marlins, Padres, Yankees, but most people would want to forget that. Kevin Brown was just an absolutely fantastic, fantastic pitcher, and I think a lot of people today don't quite remember how good he was. I'll just take a few years, a few years span here, of course, from the Baseball Reference Play Index, looking at pitchers from 1996 to 2000, uh, sorting by wins above replacement. Uh, and they had a lot of great pitchers. Then you had Maddox, Schilling, Johnson, Clemens, Pedro, all, if not in the prime of their career, right around there, uh, as well as Tom Glavin, Mike Mussina. And Kevin Brown was second in that span to only Pedro Martinez, who just had an otherworldly peak at that time. Uh, in that five-year span, he put up 37 uh, wins above replacement, uh, an eight, you know, a 6.67 winning percentage, or 6.67, however you want to look at that. Uh, Win-loss, not necessarily the most important here, but it's, it's hard to be 82 and 41 in a span of five years without being a somewhat decent pitcher. Uh, also in that span, we're looking at a 164 ERA plus. Uh, you know, if you want a, a, a bigger peak, we can just look at the 90s in general. And Kevin Brown, fifth in WAR in the 90s, and all the guys in the top 10 there uh, make our colleague Adam Dorowski's Hall of Stats, ranging from guys as borderline as Chuck Finley and Kevin Apier to the Roger Clemens and Greg Maddox of the world. Uh, in the 90s, Kevin Brown had a 48.3 wins above replacement tally. And, you know, if you're just looking more into, uh, speaking of Adam, the Hall of Stats, he's got a Hall rating of 138, which puts him, you know, well above the, you know, Hall of Fame borderline. Oh, you're done. That works for me. Dan, uh, what do you think on Kevin Brown? Yeah, I think I think Kevin Brown... Is, is a tough call. I mean, I think, I think he's got it from uh, a statistical perspective. Um, I don't know why he dropped off the ballot in his first try at under, at under 5%. Um, you know, he's, that's definitely one of the, you know, one of, one of the better players in history for that to happen to. Um, and how do you put Brown up against, uh, Kurt Schilling? I would rate Kurt Schilling better. Um, I think they're very. I think they've had very similar careers. Uh, I think Schilling does rate better considerably. I think he's some, somewhere in the 160 range by uh, Adams Hall rating. Um, but I think they're very similar in, in your in your really orthodox stats. Uh, with the biggest exception being well, well, no, two biggest exceptions. Schilling had a lot more strikeouts than Brown. And uh, Schilling has the postseason success. Right. That, that I think, is probably the biggest reason why Brown did not do better. He came up with Texas when they pretty much sucked. Uh, pitched for the Orioles one year. Was with the Marlins when they won the World Series. Again, shipped off to the Padres, and the Padres made the World Series and lost. But then after that, he spent all those years with the Dodgers and the Yankees and just basically did not – I mean, he pitched fine for the most part, but the teams just didn't do anything. Uh, the guy just basically did not have a lot of postseason success other than that 97 Marlins team, which is a team that I don't think really gets a lot of respect. Um, I think they're viewed as being a lucky team to have won the World Series, and – 
he just doesn't get the recognition. Brian, do you want to chime in with anything on Brown? Yeah, I think it's interesting, Andy, that your argument against a guy that pitched for back-to-back different World Series teams is that he didn't have a good, a strong postseason record. Uh, and, I, and I see where you're coming from. And I, I... Well, I'm just saying those two teams, the, the 97 Marlins and the 98 Padres, were not regarded as good teams, even though they were in the World Series. And then when he went to two teams that were regarded as good franchises that were spending a lot, that were trying to be really competitive, right. they didn't win any championships. He only had that one appearance in the in the 2004 postseason with the Yankees. I, one team appearance. He made more than one pitching appearance. Right. I think it's cliche within our circles to knock Jack Morris, but the year that Brown was one and done on the all-star ballot, I wrote a piece uh, comparing Morris and Brown, and the numbers are insane. I mean, it's almost a full run difference in ERA. Um, you can you can line those two up in basically any stat, and Kevin Brown just absolutely destroys Jack Morris, and Morris is hanging on, trying to get to 75% this year when Brown couldn't even get 5% his first year on the ballot. Uh, but, you know, did anybody like him? <laughs> so right. The, 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 the RAA didn't, so... That's the other. That's the other problem. So, all right, let's um, let's move on. Uh, thanks, Dalton and uh, Dan. Let's put you on the clock. Uh, you ready? I'm ready. All right, let's have it go. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about Tim Raines, of course. Um, and I, I was asked recently why Tim Raines should be a Hall of Fame or should be a Hall of Famer. I was asked to answer that in one sentence, and my answer was that he was the second best speed-oriented leadoff hitter of the second half of the 20th century. Now, adding to that, the first and the, and the third best in that category are both guys who were first ballot Hall of Famers. I'll let you figure out who those two guys are because I'm obviously um, knocking down number three a little bit. But um, I ran a play index search, um, <clears throat> And I feel like I didn't totally cherry pick here because you can pretty much do this type of thing on anybody and make a Hall of Fame case for them. But this is not a total cherry picked list. Um, basically, I ran a list going back to 1871, players' entire careers requiring runs greater than 1,400, times on base greater than 3,500, but with an OPS plus of, uh, of 120 or better. 500 or more stolen bases, and at least a 75% success rate in stolen bases. There are 10 guys that came up on that list. Barry Bonds should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer, would have been if not for steroid allegations. Ty Cobb, not only a first ballot Hall of Famer, but the first ballot in the history of the Hall of Fame. Ricky Henderson, first ballot Hall of Famer. Honus Wagner, same as Ty Cobb, first ballot in the history of the Hall of Fame. Paul Molitor, first ballot Hall of Famer. Joe Morgan, first ballot Hall of Famer. And three other guys who weren't first ballot Hall of Famers, but who are clear Hall of Famers. Eddie Collins, Fred Clark, who is the oldest in the group. Um, well, actually, George Davis is the oldest of the group. Both of those guys, last two guys are turn-of-the-century players. It did take George Davis until 1998 to get in on the Veterans Committee. That wasn't two minutes. That was two minutes. <laughs> okay. Well, Dalton did a better job of managing his time. Yeah, well, you guys, in fairness, I didn't warn you guys about this two-minute limit, so it's, I'm springing it on you. So I, uh, I don't blame you for having trouble. Uh, I don't think you're going to get much argument from anybody anyway. Brian, uh, what do you have to say about Reigns? I am obviously pro-Reigns for the Hall of Fame. Um, I will say maybe a little arbitrary endpoint there. If we're looking for the second-best leadoff man of my lifetime, I might take Kenny Lofton over Reigns. Uh, but but maybe your second half of the 20th century puts Lofton kind of on the on the borderline into the 21st. I guess it does. You know, I wasn't really even comparing him to Lofton. I, I would I would rate Reigns ahead of Lofton, but uh, we don't need to debate that right now. Um, although I can debate it maybe later if someone mentions Lofton. But um, mm, foreshadowing. <laughs> uh, but no, I, I you know I, I wasn't really meaning to do that when I when I said that it was it was mainly to compare him to to Lou Brock, I guess. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Lou Brock. Yeah. Not he's not the third best leadoff hitter for sure. No. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Go no. Ahead. No argument for me. Tim Raines should have been 
a first ballot Hall of Famer rather than a guy who for years struggled to get to around 50%. Uh, fantastic leadoff hitter, you know, got on base a ton, 385 clip for a career, and as a speedster and a very efficient one, you know, certainly never clogged the bases frequently. If he get, gets on, may even throw off, the, you know, the pitcher's rhythm, and always a threat to go, just absolute fantastic player. You get on base almost 4,000 times in your career, you should be in the Hall of Fame, no question about it. There are two arguments that the voters have used primarily against Tim Raines, both of which just drive me up the wall. One of them is the same thing Dan said, but just with a little bit of different emphasis on the words. He's the second best leadoff hitter of the second half of the 20th century. People look at it and say, he's no Ricky Henderson, you know. And he's no, yeah, that's true. There's no Ricky, he's not, he's no Ricky Henderson. No one comparison. No comparison between those two guys in terms of who's better. Yeah. Uh, Henderson is better in every way, but that's not really saying anything because Henderson is, you know, one of the very best players to ever play the game. No one has his combination of talent. Jimmy Fox is no Babe Ruth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think those people would, would, the people that you're talking about would say, would rate Lou Brock ahead of him. Right. Well, they're clearly not um, really good critical thinkers because, you know, and Brian just made my point succinctly for me. There are lots of other people in the Hall of Fame who are only the second best something who are regarded as great. I don't know why when you say second best leadoff hitter, um, you know, people have a problem with that. I mean, is the second best left-handed pitcher in the Hall of Fame? Uh, Who's that, Steve Carlton? Like... I don't even know. Randy Johnson? I don't even know. But, I mean, <laughs> he's in the Hall of Fame, you know, <laughs> I guarantee you. Uh, so that's a stupid argument. The other stupid argument is his cocaine issue, which is raised again and again and again. Like, it should. what the hell does it have to do with his Hall of Fame credentials? Never mind the fact that I personally look at someone who had a drug addiction, who stood up, took responsibility for it, did everything he could to fix it, and did fix it. I don't view that as a negative at all. Yeah, it was, you know? it was early in his career. I, yeah. I, I don't know. I, you know. What's other people's sense of whether that's being used against him anymore? I, I... It's raised all the time. I mean, I have seen it on Twitter in the last year when I've talked about Tim Raines for the Hall of Fame. People say, oh, sure, the original druggie, and oh, yeah, cokehead, and all the re- like. You know, they're, they're responding with derision towards me because the guy used cocaine. Like, how many people in this world have used drugs? And using drugs like that, I'm not talking about PEDs. Right. Using drugs like that, to me, is not a reason to judge someone as a bad person. You know, there are issues for sure around it and how you deal with it. Um, but just the fact alone that somebody used an illicit drug is not a reason for me to put a black mark next to somebody's name. And he handled it the best way he possibly could have. He did everything he should do. And what the hell does it have to do with baseball anyway? You know, it's to me, it's a, it's an insane, inane argument that has nothing to do with anything. I right. really don't want to hear it. Right. Anyway. But, I mean, I, you know, Twitter is not the place to go for insightful commentary. I mean, you're kind of scraping sometimes the bottom of the barrel of humanity with, with, with Twitter. It's, you know. And I'm not talking about the dweeb who has four followers <laughs> and no profile picture, and if you look back at his history, every single thing he said is trolling. I'm not Egghead. talking about people. Right. And Egghead. <laughs> I'm talking about, I think of it as like a teardrop, right? Um, I'm talking oh. about people who you know, people whose names I actually recognize and know uh, who have some kind of an online presence or even an in-print presence. Oh. Uh, um, I've gotten those responses from people. It's it's inane. Anyway, oh. I'm not going to name <laughs> on here. Um, I think we've, t- we've touched enough on Reigns. We all agree. Um, Brian, you are up. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, go. I'm going to talk about a guy named Barry Bonds, and I'm going to focus on Bonds' career up to 1998, it was 99 when he had some injuries, which may have led to some future decisions. Through 1998, Barry Bonds had 411 home runs, 445 stolen bases, and he was only 32 years old. He had led the league at one time or another in runs, in homers, in RBI, in walks five times, and on base percentage four times, and slugging percentage three times, and OPS five times. He led the league in intentional walks each of the last seven seasons to that point. Now, 
let's tack on the end of his career. Say what you will about it. He ended up with 142.7 war, according to baseball reference. That's our friend Tim Raines. Add another guy that's not in the hall that maybe some people think should be in Dick Allen. Add those two careers, you don't get Barry Bonds. Let's look at a couple Hall of Famers. Roberto Clemente, Roberto Alomar. Anybody think those two shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame? Add their careers, you don't get to Barry Bonds. I don't think anybody's going to argue that Bonds is not in there because he wasn't a good enough player. I just want to say that Barry Bonds, up to age 33 in 1998, was an absolute Hall of Famer who's probably one of the 10 or 12 best players to ever play the game. Oh, you got 40 seconds left to go. Want to go back in time and give those to Dan? <laughs> no, I'd like to sing uh, the score of the HMS Pinafore. Those, those, those stats that you just gave um, for for his his career war, those are those are still all just through 1998. Uh, no, 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 no. I, I added the rest of his career for the. Got it. Got it. That makes that makes more sense. Um, I don't even know what to say. I mean, Bonds is clearly. You know, Bonds is clearly a Hall of Famer in terms of his talent. Um, he's just such a colossal asshole. Uh, and I think, oh, there you go. And I think the, uh, I think the, it's really going to take a lot of time for all this PED stuff to get settled in terms of how people think about it historically and what voters think and all the rest of that. I think it's really hard to think about him and Palmero and McGuire and, and a number of the other guys now because it's all just too close. And I think that 15, I mean, you figure if a guy stays on the ballot for 15 years and he goes on five years after he retires, I'm not sure even a 20-year period is long enough to really get adequate perspective for something like this. Uh, Dan, do you have anything you want to add? Oh, it's, I guess Dalton should get first crack. Sorry. Dalton, do you have anything you want to add? Not really. I mean, Brian did a great job of summing it up. To, to, to me, there's there should be no doubt that Barry Bonds is a Hall of Famer, whether you want to end his career before he supposedly started using performance-enhancing drugs, or if you want to include the you know gargantuan numbers that he put up from 2001 to 2004, especially. It's you know for me, it's pretty cut and dry. There's uh, there's certainly no argument from me. I think he should be in. And Andy, I think you're right in that. It'll take people a while to sort out the whole PED situation. Of course, I'll be uh, very much behind Bonds getting in. Maybe not the greatest guy in the world, but you know, neither were Cobb and Anson. There's certainly no question about it in the Hall of Fame. It's fascinating because if you draw a line as Brian did, if you pick all these guys in the PED category and you look at their bodies, you look at their numbers and whatever, and you draw a line, you say, I'm real confident that before this line – there's not much of anything going on. Um, Bonds has by far the best case of his pre-line numbers. Brian just laid it out. And so you could say, like, why the hell is he not in the Hall of Fame? You could sit here and draw a line right now and say, I'm absolutely sure. The only reason he's not in the Hall of Fame is because people hate him. They absolutely hate him. That is the only reason. Why he's not in the Hall of Fame? Well, that's he not, didn't I mean, break... Sorry, that's not entirely true. I mean, it's it's because the, the people are drawing the line in the sand about about steroids, whether they hate him or not. That's not or, appropriate, though. I mean, that's not a that's not. There's no basis for choosing to vote that way, in my opinion. That's I mean, that's my opinion. But you're but right. That's the they're, reason they're, they're motivated. Yeah, right. It's not just because they hate him. I mean, they I mean they hate Clemens too, but I don't know that they hate Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza. You can't hate Sammy Sosa. And Sammy Sosa, right. Yeah. Or as Sammy Soda, as I've managed to tweet his name like three times in the last week. People think I'm doing it on purpose, but for some <laughs> reason the word soda just comes to my fingertips. I, I will say one thing about Bonds, and yeah, and, and, through, and, and Brian made a great case, and obviously it, 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 uh, it's pretty easy to make a great case for Bonds. I'm not trying to detract from that, but through, 19, through 1998, you know, he's, he was better than Tim Raines if you take his career just through 1998. So obviously I'm on Bond's side. But I was just reading something today, um, and here's a quote from Bill James, apparently. Bond did more than any other player to make a farce of the game during the steroids era, and I hold it against him. I believe Bonds was engaged in a pattern of dishonest conduct, and I hold it against him. 
he was a great player even before he got into using every steroid he could find, and I think eventually you have to honor him, but I'd make him wait. That was Bill James? That was Bill James, yeah. I mean, this is this is uh, something I read in the, the Pinstripe Bible about the Hall of Fame voting, but that's their, yeah. that's them quoting Bill James. I have to assume that. that it's yeah, see, I don't quote. agree. So, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's not. Uh, I don't agree with this notion of making people wait, which is something that's very common with the voters of like, oh, well, they do this a lot with MVPs. Like, oh, well, this guy is younger. People say that's why Miguel Cabrera won the MVP last year. They said Trout is so young. If he's this good, he'll have plenty of opportunity to win an MVP in his career. Who knows what's going to happen with Cabrera? He's older. Let's give it to him now. Apparently, there's a lot of that thinking that goes on which to me just does not compute. And there's a lot of that thinking that goes on with the Hall of Fame. They say if a guy's early on in his ballot, they say, well, he has years. I'll give him my vote later. Let me focus on other guys now. To me, that makes no sense. The only reason why that 15-year period makes any sense is to have is to have perspective. And if it were me, I might say, do it. give a guy three chances on the ballot. Five years after he retires, 15 years after and 25 years after. He's only eligible in those three, in those three years. What's the point of him being eligible every single year? Right? What's the difference between Tim Raines last year and this year? Not a lot. We don't have much more perspective on anything. Not a lot has changed. I'd rather put Raines on the shelf and let's vote on, vote on him again in 10 years when we have an even much better perspective on what his numbers mean. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I don't want to get into a whole discussion about the voting system. But, uh, Brian, thanks. It's a, it's a, it's a good debate. That can, you, uh, can I have my last 40 seconds here? You certainly um, may. So I, I did just look this up. Um, Bond's war through 1998 was 99.6. That puts him 19th all-time among position players at age 33. Next guys on the list, Nap Lajue, Jimmy Fox, Derek Jeter, Eddie Matthews, Cap Anson, Mike Schmidt. These are guys that are behind what Bonds did through age 33. Let's let's put that up against some public perception. I'll use uh, baseball references ELO Raider for what that's worth. Bonds is the number 135 position player behind Carlos Delgado and home run Baker and just ahead of Al Oliver and Louis Aparicio. That's what his ELO Raider is? But I'm the ELO Raider, yeah. How is Al Oliver that high? Al Oliver one spot behind Barry Bonds. That's just that's how much people I mean, hate him. That's, that's how much about him. Yeah. That's people just chalking up everything he did to steroids. When without steroids, uh, I mean, the guy was Hank Aaron, and with steroids, he was Babe Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> Babe Ruth, just the number two home run hitter for many years. Um, all right, so I will uh, I'll jump in. Um, I got my own timer going. So <laughs> number ninety-seven on the Elo Raider is. Kenny Lofton, I love the I love the the uh, coughing right as I'm starting to talk on the clock here. Appreciate that. Um, Kenny Lofton is my guy, and he is, for all intents and purposes, identical to Tim Raines in terms of his career value. Raines obviously had more power, uh, quite a bit significantly. But you know, when you look at th- there are 50 guys since 1916 who've had at least a thousand games batting leadoff. And uh, Lofton's up there, the fifth best career war, just behind Reigns. So number one is obviously Henderson, Pete Rose, Paul Molitor. Then Reigns is at 68.8, Lofton 67.9. He's less than one win behind. Uh, and all five of those guys are clearly Hall of Fame caliber players. Clearly Pete Rose is not in. After Lofton is Biggio, Richie Ashburn, Ichiro, goes on down from there. He's way up in the upper echelon uh, of leadoff hitters all time. He only has a career 107 uh, ops plus, which is something that I hear knocked all the time. Well, that's actually good for 19th all time in this group of of 50 guys with 1,000 leadoff games. And keep in mind, he did it in the steroid era. He did it when, when all these other guys were hitting for power, driving up, league-wide on-base plus slugging. That's why his ops suffers so much, his ops plus. And he hung on for a long time because he was so good in the field and his overall career number declined. If you look at just his first 10 years, look at guys through age 33, you know, he's up at the 13th best with a 112. 
unbelievable defender, unbelievable stolen base guy, changed the game when he was on the base paths, Hall of Famer should have been. The fact that he's off the ballot after once is a is a travesty. Perfect. Uh, Dan, what do you think about Lofton? I think, um, you know, I think Lofton compares very favorably to Reigns. Um, I think it's, yeah, like you said, I think it's a travesty that he dropped off after after one ballot. I, I, I just don't know how that happened. I mean, he's got the same, other than, you know, like you said, Reigns having a little bit better power. So Reigns maybe being a little bit better hitter. Um, Lofton, though, is a better defender. He won the gold gloves. He was a center fielder. Maybe Brian's right. Maybe, you know, maybe this is closer than I thought. But if you know, if, if Range is a Hall of Famer, I think Boston's a Hall of Famer as well. I mean, that's how I feel. The two guys I look at very, very similarly and very clearly, very clearly, they should be in. Um, Dalton, what do you think? Yeah, I, I think he should be in certainly. Uh, when I was, you know, growing up, when I was a young kid. You know, my dad was an Indians fan, has been for most of his life, and you know, so of course I got to you know see them play a lot and hear him talk about him. And even you know, he looked great, you know, in the in the in the field on the base pads. Uh, and it's a crime that he only got two more votes last year, or I guess really early this year, than teammate Sandy Alomar, who put up maybe a fifth of the total value of of uh, of Lofton. But I think a lot the thing with Lofton too is Lofton was also just hated. In, uh, by the media, they couldn't stand him. I remember you know, reading a few things about, you know, just articles saying that him, Bonds, Bell, and a few other guys were just about the biggest jerks people had ever come across uh, in the game of baseball. And I think that certainly kept him uh, from the five percent mark. Brian, what do you, what do you have to say? So uh, personally, Lofton was difficult for me because. He was the first guy that I never thought of as a Hall of Famer throughout his career. He made his way to the ballot, and I took an objective look, and I let a lot of other people influence me, and I came around to the realization that he's just absolutely a Hall of Famer. That, you know, if there's a Hall of Fame borderline based on the people in the Hall of Fame right now, Kenny Lofton is so far above it. I mean, there are probably 50 Hall of Famers, 75 Hall of Famers who are below where Kenny Lofton was. I think this is probably something that happens to everybody, and I think people a lot older than me have probably, this happens many times. You know, you get this right. this platonic ideal of what a Hall of Famer is, and you watch a guy play, and you just don't feel like he's a Hall of Famer. At the end of the, end of the career, you go back and you, you look at his defense and you look at his base running and you look at his offense and you add it all together and you're like, this guy was amazing. And this guy was better than a lot of guys that I thought were Hall of Famers when they were playing. So, I mean, I've totally come around to it now, but I understand why he didn't get 5%. I think a lot of the writers are older, and I think they saw Lofton play and thought, well, he's good. But through the 2000s, he got traded every year. He was just kind of a hired gun. Uh, you know, he, he wasn't Tony Gwynn who played – I don't know, 17, 18 seasons for the Padres, in and out, big batting averages, and just made it very clear from you know his mid-20s that he was a Hall of Famer. A uh, couple things. So it's interesting. I, I know that this argument that he got moved around a lot is always brought up uh, as a sign that he couldn't be that valuable. It's actually quite the opposite, right? He was moving around when he was already 34, 35 years old but still carried a lot of value, and no one's going to give a guy, you know, that old a center fielder a long contract, so he was working mostly on one, two-year contracts, but he always found another team because the guy could still play. He could still hit. He could still field. And those, and those um, teams were the 2002 Giants made it to the World Series, 2003 Cubs lost the NLCS, 2004 Yankees lost the ALCS. So if you want to, if you want to talk about that, he's, he was on winners. Yep. Right, and that's, I think, another thing that actually somewhat hurts him over his career. You know, think about the guys he was playing with, you know, with McGriff and, and Manny and Tony and all these other guys who were much higher profile. And nobody, I ever, I never hear anybody make the argument of one of the reasons why those guys were so good was because Lofton was always on base. You know, they just say, oh, Anybody could have got on base. He just, you know, was getting driven in by those other guys. One other really quick Kenny Lofton moment before we wrap. Um, it was the anniversary of, of Eric Gregg's death a couple weeks ago. Um, I, can't, I, think it, I think it was the fifth anniversary of his death. I'm not sure. And I was tweeting about that infamous game in the, in the 97 
NLCS uh, where Greg was working home plate when Levon Hernandez was pitching for the Marlins against the Braves. Uh, and there's that great YouTube video showing all of the incredible strikes that he called that were balls that were more than a foot off the plate. Um, and I actually tweeted to Kenny Lofton. He was playing on the Braves, and, and there's a moment in that video where there's like a close-up of Kenny Lofton. He's kind of rolling his eyes or whatever. Uh, he's clearly feeling defeated. Uh, and I asked him on Twitter, how did you feel that day when that game happened and when, when Greg was calling that? And he just responded to me by Twitter and said, worst day ever. <laughs> I don't know what he had to say about it, but uh, he's a good guy. And I and I know that he feels terrible about falling off the Hall of Fame ballot. And I, I don't really know. I feel like I'm going to be campaigning for him for many, many years until – he gets some consideration uh, down the road. But I feel like it's going to be another Ron Santo. He'll get in the year after he dies or something. Uh, it just makes me depressed to think about it. Anyway, thanks, guys. Uh, anything else anybody wants to add on this? Lofton needs a better nickname. He doesn't have one. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, thanks, fellas. And, uh I think that we'll be returning to the subject of the Hall of Fame probably in the off season. So uh, there's something to look forward to. Thank you very much, and I will talk to you guys soon. Right. Thanks again, Andy. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Episode 7 in the books. I don't always give you everybody's Twitter handles in every episode, but I think it's worth mentioning a couple new things that have come around. First of all, Dan McCluskey, uh, although you may already follow him at underscore left field, he actually has another Twitter Twitter handle, uh, at rockinthehall. That's all one word, no underscores or anything like that. And it is, of course, a, a Twitter handle that is in support of Tim Raines, The Rock, getting into uh, the Hall of Fame. Actually, I guess Tim Raines is not The Rock. He was just Rock. The Rock is uh, somebody totally different. Um, so Rock in the Hall uh, is a good good follow if you want to hear more about Tim Raines. And as promised, Dalton uh, has started up again with The Thinking Fan, which you can find at thethinkingfan.com, also on Twitter at thinking underscore fan. And once again, Brian is at rep level. He doesn't have any other Twitter accounts as far as I know, but follow him at rep level to get more. And of course, you can follow me at high heat stats. I also want to mention again Adam Dorowski's Hall of Stats. You heard it mentioned several times during our debates today. That's hallofstats.com or on Twitter at hallofstats. Now, I promised you uh, I would talk about players who wore the number seven. Uh, this information comes from baseballreference.com. If you, if you go to any player page, uh, you'll see his uniform number listed fairly close to the top of the page, sort of between his biographical information and, and before where the actual statistics start. If you click on that, you can get to a page of people who wore that number for that team, and if you click further, you can get to people who wore that number altogether. It seems like a good time to mention um, that Baseball Reference sponsors us. Get yourself a Play Index subscription to do the kinds of searches that you heard earlier in our Hall of Fame debates. Go to BaseballReference.com slash Play Index. Put in the coupon code HHS, get $3 off your subscription if you are a new subscriber. Uh, it does make a great gift, uh, especially for the off-season when there's, when there's no baseball news and, and you want to have something fun to do, uh, you can get lost for hours on the play index. So you might want to think about giving that as a gift. Now, guys who wore the number 7 for at least 10 years in the majors, I promised it, it is a pretty long list. Uh, here we go, ranked by the number of years worn. Yvonne Rodriguez wore for 21 years in the majors. Craig Biggio at 19, Mickey Mantle at 18. Uh, after that, a bunch of other guys. Mark Belanger, Ed Cranepool, Steve Yeager, Kenny Lofton, my main man, 
J.D. Drew, Harvey Keen, Rick Burleson, Don Money, Jose Reyes, Dom DiMaggio, Kevin Mitchell, Greg Gagne, Jeff King, Denny Hawking, if you got that one, uh, pretty impressive. Reggie Smith, Joe Maurer, Rick Monday, Hal Trotsky, Trot Nixon, Jody Davis, Hubie Brooks, and Jim Rivera. I told you it was a long list. Uh, hopefully you got a few of those off there. We will be coming back to you pretty soon with a trivia podcast and a special new type of trivia segment called Beat the Heat. You'll hear more about that uh, coming down the road once we get those posted up there. Just wanted to say before we sign off, if you have any questions or comments or things you'd like to see on the podcast, go ahead and email them to us at feedback at highheatstats.com. And finally, would really appreciate if you're listening on iTunes, if you could give us a rating on there. You don't even have to write a review. Just give us a star rating. It would be very, very helpful. Um, I think that's it. And uh, be lucky. Hey, Brian, you don't have to try so hard to be funny. You're, you're naturally funny all the time. Naturally funny and synthetically drunk, so we'll see how that works. <laughs> Kurt Schilling detracts from pretty much everything, I think.